Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand heat? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What's happening in the world of science? How would you like to go into space? Yes. I would love to go into space. Can I drive? I've always wanted to go into space. Well, I don't think they'll let you... I don't think Richard Branson will let you have the controls of his new project, Spaceship Two, which was unveiled in the Mojave Desert in California this week. Uh, this is Richard Branson's new venture, Virgin Galactic, which is his space tourism venture. It's going to take people into uh, space for pleasure trips. Not long, admittedly. You only get about five or six minutes of zero gravity, or weightlessness, um, and then you have to glide back home. But it sounds like it could be exciting, but quite pricey. $200,000 is the ticket price. I can't afford uh, Apparently that. there are 300 people on the waiting list already. But no, this is really interesting. Um, it's technology based on the Spaceship One approach, which was pioneered by a guy called Bert Rutan in uh, 2004. He won the sought-after X Prize, which was a $10 million prize for the first amateur ascent into microgravity with successful return, not just of the craft, but with a living person aboard too. And he succeeded and did it. And that system involved the launch of a small rocket, Spaceship One, which was deployed from a bigger carrier aeroplane and then powered itself up to above the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, what Richard Branson's done is to take that concept and build Spaceship Two, which is a bit bigger. It's got room for six passengers and two crew members. It's about 18 metres long. And this will be carried to a height of 50,000 feet by White Knight, which is the, the mothership, if you like, a sort of aeroplane. And then it will get launched and then power itself under a rocket to a, a height of about 110 kilometres, uh, which means that people will get about five minutes of seeing their M&Ms bob around in front of them. If they open the packet, they'll float out. Uh, you have to be very careful with the brown ones, I'm told. Uh, and then you... Uh, f well, in case anyone's had an accident in their pants on the way up, you see. Um, and, and then you come back down. So it could be good. They say they've got 300 people queued up already. Um, I, if I could afford it, I'd be on that list. I think I'd want to go for a week, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> that price, at least. Know, going to space is quite bad for your health, actually. Um, being in that zero or microgravity environment isn't healthy. It makes people have very bad bones. If you measure the bone densities of astronauts after they've been in space for any period of time, they actually age their bones very, very fast. They have osteoporosis if they're not careful because the lack of load-bearing exercise means that there's nothing to keep your bones strong. So astronauts have to be really, really careful and there are other health consequences too. So I think a, a little bit is good, too much is, is not good. So I'm quite happy to settle for the five minutes and see how I like it. Hmm. Right, let's get straight on with your questions, Dr Chris from The Naked Scientist. Now Leanne in Gillingham says, Dr Chris, is, why do we faint? Well, fainting, the other word for it is syncope. And what happens when you have a faint is that your blood pressure 
or the amount of blood reaching your brain drops for a bit. Uh, one of the reasons why this can happen, there isn't many of them, is just because the amount of blood flowing back to your heart from your dependent tissues, in other words, usually your legs, is too low. Now, the way in which this works is that you have a concept of something called cardiac output. In other words, how much blood your, your heart is pumping in a minute. And you calculate cardiac output by multiplying how many times your heart beats in a minute by how much blood it beats. So, in other words, you can change how much blood your heart pumps in two ways. You can either boost up the number of heartbeats your heart does, or you can boost up how much blood flows back into the heart and therefore gets pumped out again. Now, if someone's been standing up for a very long period of time, then what can happen is that blood can pool or collect in the veins, in the legs. And what happens is that this means that the amount of blood flowing back up into the heart is reduced. And this can mean that the amount of cardiac output can drop. And because the cardiac output drops, the amount of blood perfusing the brain drops. And this causes you to faint or lose consciousness. And as you drop to the floor, of course, what happens is that all that blood that was collecting in the veins in your legs then immediately flows back to the heart and blood pressure goes back up to normal again. And this reperfuses the brain much better and you feel much better and you, you come round. Now, it's not just standing up on a hot day for too long that does this. People can also faint for various reasons. If your heart rhythm goes out of step. So in other words, if your heart starts beating far too fast in order to fill up quickly enough, um, what that can do is also mean that you end up with too little cardiac output. If you end up with a blockage to the flow of blood, um, for some other reason, you can, f you can have a faint, you can have too low a blood pressure, hypotension. Um, people who have blockage to the arteries in the lungs, for example, if they have a pulmonary embolus, can have a, a reduction in the amount of blood flowing out of the heart. And as a result of that, they can underperfuse their brain and they can lose consciousness. Usually it's very hard to resuscitate someone if that happens. And, and there are also drugs as well which can cause things like the amount of blood pressure um, coming back up the legs to drop. So again, your cardiac output can suffer. So there's a whole range of reasons why this can happen, but it's globally down to a, re a reduction in adequate blood flow to the brain. Excellent. In fact, uh, Tad has sent an email in and uh, he was saying that um, he thought it was pretty safe, um, not smoking, not drinking, but he was really, you know, far too overweight. And uh, he was saying that he has to have a little operation, um, a stent, and um, he's wondering whether you agree about the fact that, you know, too much weight is really, really dangerous and how important it is not to overindulge in Christmas. At Christmas. Yeah, um, unfortunately, um, people often uh, don't appreciate how bad for your health carrying too much weight is. Um, something like 50% of the population of the UK are now overweight, and about one person in every four is obese. And this has gone up enormously because about 10 years ago, those numbers were half that big. So it's a new problem and it's an accelerating or growing problem as to why people are carrying too much weight. And the, the cost to people's health comes in a number of ways. One is that when you carry too much weight, you tend to have blood pressure that's too high. And if you have too high blood pressure, this is an, a way of accelerating damage to blood vessels. When you have sustained chronically high blood pressure, you can get atheroma, in other words, the build-up of fatty blockages in the walls of arteries, and you can also encourage the formation of aneurysms. These are bulges in the walls of, of arteries that are prone to burst. So that can also place you at risk of a stroke, which is the other major consequence of high blood pressure. And it can also damage your kidneys, damage your eyes, and damage nerve fibres and things. So it's, a, it's bad news if you have too high blood pressure. The other thing that being uh, on the large side does do is to increase 
increase your cholesterol level in your blood. And so people who have obesity have what's called type 4 hypercholesterolemia. And as a result, if you have very high cholesterol levels, this increases the chance that you will have cholesterol building up in the walls of blood vessels. So if you have a a high blood pressure already, an injury to the wall of the vessel, and then you have cholesterol there in higher levels than it should be. This encourages the formation of atherosclerosis or atheromatous deposits, damage to artery walls. So really, um, the obesity is, is bad for blood vessels. And the other thing it's very bad for is your insulin level, because for some reason, and we don't completely understand how this works yet, but we know that obesity and, and having too much weight on board makes you resistant to your own insulin, the hormone from the pancreas that lowers the level of glucose in the blood. And as a result, people initially become what's called hyperglycemic and have impaired glucose tolerance. They end up with high levels of circulating sugar in the bloodstream and then they can become overtly diabetic. And once you become diabetic, of course, you can't handle glucose properly and the blood glucose level gets very high and that in itself is an independent risk factor for damaging blood vessels. Very bad for nerve fibres, it's very bad for kidneys and it can cause a sort of magnification of all of the other effects. And together, those effects, obesity and diabetes, cost the NHS every year more than £3 billion, putting them right. And so it really is a serious health issue, and that's why the government have prioritised it as something they want to see tackled. Now, let's go to uh, Ralph in Stanford. He says he heard on Radio 5 this morning an interesting interview about Yellowstone and some rings of fire and was wondering if Chris knew anything about this and the time lags that uh, he was hearing about on the programme. Does that ring any bells with you, Chris? Well, I wasn't up in the early hours of the morning. I was sleeping. Um, But I I do know a little bit about Yellowstone, um, what's uh, made famous by... Uh, the Yogi Bear family is Jellystone, but Yellowstone's a massive, massive national park in the US, very famous, um, home to much wonderful wildlife, but it's also home to a super volcano. There's something called a caldera, which is a giant chamber which is filling with hot magma, and this is the melted magmatic material from the Earth and the Earth's crust. And this caldera has accumulated this material and it's growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And scientists think that there's a possibility that this thing could erupt. And it's so big, in fact, if it did erupt, it would basically lay waste the whole of the North American continent and would probably uh, spell disaster for much of the rest of the world because the amount of dust and stuff that it would eject into the atmosphere would be so enormous that it would plunge us into a nuclear winter initially and and also have massive consequences for global warming after that because of the gases going into the atmosphere. Um, And so scientists are interested in monitoring it because they want to know exactly how it's responding, how it's changing, because then we can keep an eye on it. Oh, and why it's changing as well. It's pretty scary, isn't it? Now, Alan in Orpington says, The human face consists of eyes, nose, mouth, chin, etc., but every face is different. Does this also work with the internal organs? It's true that we all look different externally and the reason we all look different is because we are a product of our genes and when we are made, unless we have an identical twin, then there is nobody on earth who has the same pattern or combination of genes that each individual does. We are unique, every single one of us on earth. There's no other quite like us. And those genes pattern the body. They tell the cells how to organise themselves and therefore they determine your skeletal structure, the size of muscles that hang on that skeletal structure and therefore your appearance. And as a result, you look 
like no one else, unless you have a twin. And so the answer to the external question is, yes, we are all definitely distinctive on the outside. And for a long time, people thought that it didn't really apply on the inside. Everyone's got a liver, everyone's got a heart, and so on. But in recent years, it's become apparent that actually it makes a huge difference what we look like on the inside, not grossly, not, not macroscopically. If you cut someone open, you can see all these organs. They all look broadly different, uh, all, all look broadly the same, uh, one person to the next. But where the real difference c- kicks in is at the molecular level. Because for years, we've been dishing out drugs and someone has some kind of infection or some kind of pain or some problem somewhere. And you go into the doctor and the doctor says, take this drug and this will sort out your high blood pressure or this will lower your cholesterol. And everyone gets the same drug. And that's a bit like you going into a shoe shop and saying, I need a pair of shoes. And they take the first thing that comes to hand off the top shelf and give it to you and say, wear this because they didn't measure your feet. And the point is that on the inside, metabolically and chemically, just as we are unique on the outside, we're unique on the inside too. And that means that the way in which cells respond to different drugs and molecules, the way in which uh, our, our tissues handle different chemicals, is subtly different from one person to the next. And so there's a new movement now in the last 10 years or so to try to tailor therapies to people's genetics. This is called pharmacogenomics. And already, now we've got the the power of the Human Genome Project and it's becoming cheaper and quicker to sequence people's DNA people are beginning to see patterns between different gene combinations in people and different responses to different drugs. And so there is a movement now to begin to implement certain therapies in certain people. At the moment, it's very blunt and broad. For instance, we know that, say, Afro-Caribbean people do worse on one class of drugs than white people. White people do worse on another class of drugs than black people and so on. So we have these very black and white type relationships. No one's actually got it really, really precise yet, but they're working on it. And so that's a very insightful question and a very important concept that will become more and more important in the future. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Now, uh, Anne in Erpingham is asking, why does hot water freeze quicker than cold? Chris. Well, actually, this is probably something of an urban myth, in fact. It's very difficult to prove that this is the case. Um, We've had a go at doing this on The Naked Scientists, and our thinking is that, in fact, it probably doesn't if you do the experiment carefully. What happens when you heat the water up? If you take two bottles of water and make one very hot and the other one keep at, say, room temperature and then put them both in the freezer, when you've when you've made the water very, very hot in one of the beakers, what you've actually done is probably two things. One, you have removed some solute, things that are dissolved in the water, assuming you use tap water, by by heating it up. Because when you make water very, very hot, if you boil it, for example, um, then you might get some of the salts precipitating on the element of your kettle, in the same way you get lime scale. So this removes solute, and you will also make gases that are dissolved in the water bubble out. And when you put anything in water... Uh, what you actually do is to change the freezing point for a start, and this may affect the properties of the water. But also, when you, uh, in other words, you'll get clean water, and you might have some spiky crystals at the bottom of the glass, which might help it to, to start freezing sooner. The other thing is, of course, that when you make it warm, you give energy to the water molecules, and this makes it easier for them to evaporate. So you might actually not have quite the same amount of water in the one that was hot compared to the one that was cold. And as a result, it's got to lose less energy because it's got less water there to start with that's hot. And as a result, it actually may lose heat faster and get to the freezing point faster because there's less of it. One other theory that was suggested to me, and I'm not sure 
quite how robust this is, was that when you make water hot, you give it convection currents. It goes round and round in a circle. And uh, that's because the hot water is less dense and rises, and the cooler water is more dense and it falls. And this creates a sort of circuit going round in the receptacle, whenever you've got the water in. And as a result of that turning motion, as the water cools down, it carries on turning because the resistance is very, very low to it actually moving, but it carries on turning and this helps to keep the water mixing and help it to keep giving away heat a bit quicker than if it's much more still and static, like the cold water would be the one that started cold. So those are some theories as to why it's not necessarily a fair experiment or necessarily true that, that hot water will freeze before cold water because the point is you can't get round the physics which is that in order to get to a freezing point, the water has to have got rid of as much energy as it needs to in order to reach freezing point. And it loses heat at a rate of by, by radiating heat and convecting heat and dumping it into the environment. And if you've got two identical containers in two identical conditions, in other words, they're in a free, freezer environment and they're identical, then there's a limit at which the rate can there's a there's a limit on how fast it can lose heat, and as a result, one can't necessarily overtake the other. So we, I'm not sure that, that that it's actually true. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. All right, then, for, from water, let's go to uh, face scrubs and how to get rid of spots and oily skin. That's a question that's by Asked with Dom. How do face scrubs get rid of spots and oily skin? Wish I knew. Chris? Well, the reason that we actually have um, spottiness and, and oiliness, and they're usually more common in guys um, than girls, is because of testosterone largely. You'll notice that most people don't get spots until they go into puberty and that's when the testosterone level goes up and when you get more testosterone you get hairier but you also get greasier the action of various glands in the skin that produce oils and sebum this is the oily stuff that comes out of your pores that the production of those chemicals increases and as a result of this it changes the microflora the spectrum of bacteria and bugs that live on your skin. And they tend to shift in favour of a more spotogenic, spot-forming profile for a start. But then the next thing that can happen is that with in enhanced secretions of oils and greases and things from the pores, you're more likely for those pores to get blocked up. And if they get blocked, then you can get local accumulations of bacteria which are in there and they're feeding on the grease and they accumulate by growing and because they're stuck in one place the byproducts waste products chemicals and inflammatory materials made by those bacteria also increase and so you get a local spot and when you want to get rid of that what you can do is to use various exfoliants these are materials that take away excess skin dead skin especially which bacteria like to eat and the grease and those chemicals include things like peroxides. Benzoyl peroxide is um, benzoyl peroxide is is a favourite because it's fairly well tolerated, but very good at getting rid of the grease and the ex excess uh, dead skin. And basically, what you're what you're doing is changing the environment of the skin surface so that the bacteria that are carried or grow there probably subtly changes and it changes in favour of a spectrum of bacteria which are less good at causing spots 
and more good at preventing the growth of bacteria that do cause spots. And it's becoming apparent how important the bacterial populations are on our skin every day. We're realising um, much more than we did before that, that, that how important these um, bacterial spectra are. Now, let's go to the phones because Tony is on the line. Hello, Tony. Good evening, dear. Now, what is your question for Dr Chris? Well, it's really um, to do with um, electricity. It's generated in various ways, we know. And I, they don't seem to use um, tidal power. Um, have they ever tried doing that? That They have, Tony, and um, there are a number of ways of harnessing energy through the movement of water. Um, one of them is, as you say, tides, which come in and go out. And when the tide comes in, what it does is push enormous amounts of water uphill because all this water comes in and it gets pushed up to usually a river mouth or an estuary or something. And that means there's a lot of potential energy there. So if you therefore put some kind of barrier in the way of that water, when the tide goes out again, you've now got lots of water with lots of potential energy that you can then release through a turbine, for example, and that will produce energy. And people have calculated that if we had some kind of barrier uh, across the River Severn, we could produce enormous amounts of energy because the amount of water that was being funnelled up the Severn, uh, as evidenced by the Severn bore, actually, is huge. Of yeah. course, there's an environmental cost there because you're changing the ecosystem, you're changing the ecology in a very big way, and not everyone is comfortable with that. The other way to harness energy from water is... Well, actually, there was a very interesting one which uh, Dave Ansell raised on The Naked Scientist a couple of weeks ago when he said, well, there's a, a group in Norway who are using osmosis to generate energy. What they're doing is to take seawater. They have the seawater in a tank with a special membrane which is partially permeable. In other words, it lets very small water molecules through, but it won't let salts and other things through. And in the next door tank, you put a lot of fresh water that you've collected from a river. And osmosis is the movement of water from an area where there's lots of fresh water into a more concentrated solution to try to balance things out. So what happens in this power station, effectively, is that the fresh water moves out of the tank with fresh water into the tank with the seawater to try and dilute it. This puts the pressure up in the seawater tank and that pressure can be used to drive a turbine and that produces a small amount of, of electricity. So Norway not having a very high population, this could actually be a very good way for them to produce energy with virtually no environmental impact. Mm. A third way that you can make energy from the sea is to use the things that, that surfers love, waves. Waves are produced by wind and also water movement um, accumulating and moving across the surface of the ocean and as the waves get towards the shore of course the sea gets shallower so the wave gets apparently higher and also it changes its speed slows down as it goes into shallow water but because that's a displacement you've got something going up and down people are looking at extracting energy from that displacement and turning it into electricity and there's a number of ways you can do that one is to use a system of tethered buoys so if you put this, not humans, obviously, these are things that float. Um, so if you have some kind of anchor on the seabed, a line going up and then a buoy which is buoyant, as the wave goes through, the buoy moves up and then down and so on. And what you can do is to make it move some kind of generator inside the buoy in sympathy with the ocean movement, and that generates a small amount of electricity. Another way that people are trying to do it is with a big floating worm. Um, I can't remember the name of it now, but there was a couple of years ago a, a 
a press release where they've put this massive, it looks like a snake, which is suspended on the surface of the sea up, up north. And as the water comes along in a big wave, it causes sections of this worm to move or kind of uh, twist rel relative to each other. And this in itself creates electricity. And so there are a number of ways that people are trying to do this because we recognise how much energy is being wasted or just not exploited in moving water around on Earth every single day. And if we could just harness a small amount of that, it would be very, very useful. And we could probably do it in a way that won't necessarily harm the environment too much. Joy having you on the programme. Thank you very much, Tony. A pleasure. Thanks very much, for Dr Chris. Bless you. Thank you very much. Now, let's go to um, thinking about uh, apes and genes now, Dr Chris. Mike in Colchester says he's off to Borneo for Christmas. How close are the genes between humans and apes? Incredibly close. Um, we know that humans last shared a common ancestor with, say, a chimpanzee about six million years ago. So separating the two of us now is about six million years of evolution. So about six million years ago, if you went back that far, you would find an animal that was the ancestor of both a chimp and a human. In other words, the DNA that chimps carry and the DNA that humans carry has come from that one ancestor. And that DNA will have changed over about six million years between the two of us, but it's changed very little. Um, probably half a percent, if that difference in DNA between us and a chimpanzee. And that doesn't sound like much, but you have to bear in mind that the DNA code of a human being is pretty huge. Um, there's three billion genetic letters in a person, so even one percent is a very big number of genetic differences. But between a human and a mouse, there's only about one and a half percent change or difference in the genetic code. And the really striking thing is that there's only about, a, well, a 40 percent difference between a human being and a banana. Um, we share more than 60 or 70% of our genes with bananas. Not just bananas, but pretty much all the plant kingdom. Um, many of the genes that keep plants going and provide their met metabolism and keep, give them their energy and help them to do various synthetic processes, many of those genes are running in humans too. And the amazing thing is that you can take a gene from a person and you can insert it into a plant and the plant will make the product of the human gene. So we're all kind of related. Um, probably about four billion years ago, there was one common ancestor, one super cell that in fact we're all related to. And that includes bacteria. And the evidence for that is if you look at the way the genetic code works, it doesn't matter whether you're E. coli or a human, the same genetic code, the same combination of genetic DNA letters is used in E. coli to make its proteins and the things that its genetic recipe book encodes as works in a human or a jellyfish or a banana. So actually we're all, we're all related to each other. We're all one big happy family here on Earth. How lovely. We have Ted on the phone. Hello, Ted. Good evening. How are you? Very well, thank you. All right, you've got a question for Dr Chris. What is the difference between uh, distilled water and deionised water? Is there a difference or is it the same name? It's not the same name because they actually refer to two different processes, Ted. Um, the way in which you 
uh, make distilled water is you take water which has got contaminants in it, salts usually, things like calcium, the stuff that makes scum, makes your water hard, makes your kettle fur up, calcium ions, sodium, there's some chloride, bicarbonate, all those kind of things. And when you heat the water to a high temperature, it boils, but because it takes a lot more energy to make those ions, those dissolved salts, evaporate, they're left behind and just water molecules break free from the surface of the liquid and form steam. And if you condense that steam, you then get a relatively pure solution, which is distilled water. The name is distillation because you're boiling something to then condense it, and that's how you purify it. Now, deionized water is a different technique. You don't boil anything to make deionized water. What you actually do with that is you pass the water across a column or some kind of membrane and you use a special series of columns or membranes which are selectively permeable. What that means is that they have some kind of chemistry on the surface which loves grabbing the ions, the dissolved salts, out of the water and it replaces them usually with a sodium or a hydroxide. Um, and because those two things are in equal numbers, then they cancel each other out and you don't get water that's more acid or more alkaline. So they're two different processes that arrive at a broadly similar product, which is water that doesn't have any dissolved salts in it. And the more expensive your equipment usually, the more deionized the water is, the better it is. The one thing to, to bear in mind, though, is that the deionized water might have inorganic things, uh, sorry, it might have organic chemicals in there which won't be removed by the process. They might be removed by the distillation. So you're not guaranteed to get pure water unless you pass it through additional columns and filters which are capable of getting all of the things out. But it's a good way of, of getting the water so that you remove all those excess salts. OK, so can you put either or into a, like a battery? When they say put distilled water in the battery, can you put either or? Yes, you can. I mean, if the water is of high quality, there's no reason why you shouldn't. The reason you put distilled water into a battery and not just tap water is because the way a battery works is by selectively depositing or liberating ions in a chemical reaction from a solute, in other words, sorry, from a solution like an acid, for example, and a metal. And if you put other chemicals into the battery, the other chemicals might have a higher affinity for the metal in the battery than the actual metal ions which are dissolved in the liquid, and they get in the way of the battery trying to release metal ions or mop up metal ions, which is how you get your energy out of the battery. Whereas if you just put pure water in, you don't mess around with the chemical reaction that makes the energy come out of the battery. So they should both be analogous. You should be okay with either deionized or distilled water at the kind of level that those batteries are working at. Excellent. Well, I'm okay. glad that you asked the question. Yeah, OK. Thank you very much indeed. Take you care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Now, Dr Chris, um, Larry in Northampton has said, we often hear about the potentially fatal Legionnaires' disease in the water system. Does it lurk in our domestic system and how can we prevent it? Chris. Well, Legionnaires is a microorganism, Legionella pneumophila, and this is an environmental pathogen, lives in the environment, and as the name suggests, loves water, as you said in the question, likes wet places, and it thrives in warm water. So it loves hot water, and what happens, or what we tend to find, is that if you don't make the water sufficiently hot when you heat water up in your water tank, then you can actually make a nice big bacterial banquet going on, and you get loads of Legionella amplifying, and yes, it is in the water supply. But most of the time, the amount that it's there in is tiny. And most people who have a good immune system and are exposed to tiny amounts of it don't have any kind of consequences. 
But when people are exposed to overwhelmingly large amounts in the form of a big aerosol, for example, if you have a cooling tower spray or an air conditioning unit spraying out steam and it's spraying out bucket loads of the stuff and someone breathes it in, then you can end up with a nasty pneumonia. You get a Legionella pneumonia. And this is where the, the bugs are replicating or growing themselves in the lung tissue. And it's a very aggressive disease. And it's also common in people who travel. Um, and the way in which you can mitigate against that is by making sure that the water supplies are heated to a very high temperature. Because the cold water, of course, is, heat, is, is treated with chlorine. But the warm water uh, often isn't. And it may have a tank in the roof or something that then gets contaminated with Legionella and doesn't get sufficiently heated and doesn't deactivate the bugs. And so they're there growing around the spout on the shower head or on the tap. Whereas if you make the water more than 60 degrees, that kills them. So most public service buildings now have to make sure that their, that their taps and their water supplies end up heating the water to much, much above 60 degrees to make sure it inactivates the Legionella. And that's why you'll now see these helpful stickers saying, warning, very hot water coming from the hot tap. Uh, no prizes for um, kind of uh, twigging on that one. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 